Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We are thrilled to have Jeffrey Dennis with us with UBS on the Emerging Market Watch, but maybe also on the collapsed multi-decade market watch, which always and forever is Japan. The emperor has requested an abdication, according to NHK News. The crown prince is, I believe, 56 and has been waiting. There are some similarities to England, but Japan is an island nation very different from the United Kingdom. What difficult forecasts of GDP and inflation today? There's no doubt that the efforts that the prime minister has put in place in Japan to really Arbonomics, as it's called, to really stimulate the economy, move growth higher, and of course also move inflation higher, have just not already worked out at this point in time. And the markets have become very disappointed about that. And in particular, there's been a lot of missed signals from, uh, mixed signals, I'm sorry, from the central bank about how much more policy easing they're going to do. But what that's led to is also a very strong yen until the last couple of days, and that just makes the problem harder. So the markets are assessing that the Japanese policy framework is basically not working. And, um, and, of course, now you have this major political event of the potential abdication of the emperor. If uh, Japan does well, – the, the abdication of the emperor would be, have an interesting psychological impact on the Japanese. And it's probably, mm-hmm. I'm guessing, almost too difficult to quantify what it would mean for the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably a short-term boost as people spend in anticipation of a new emperor, you know, mm-hmm. souvenirs and travel and tourism and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But I'm wondering more about the stimulus plan that – uh, Prime Minister Abe is talking about if it's just additional fiscal spending within Japan's uh, borders. I'm not sure it has a big spillover effect into the rest of the world. But there's also talk that what they might be thinking about is some form of helicopter money, which I would imagine would have a major spillover effect into emerging markets. Yeah, and and, and to be fair, uh, many argue that the helicopter money concept, if we're going to end up with that in this low inflation, low rate world, is going to be initiated, if if by anybody, by, by the Japanese. And, and there will be some sort of a spillover. But in a way, that's where we are now, because we're having an another one of these enormous liquidity rallies post the UK referendum, which is is pulling money into into the emerging markets. We've had a big rally. In fact, we called our second half report, which came out a couple of days ago, liquidity versus growth. The trend here is that the growth numbers in my world, in EM, are, if anything, deteriorating again. And net-net, the, the UK vote, its fallout will be somewhat negative for European growth. At the same time, ratcheting down of, of global bond yields in the US, um, in the UK, we just heard about German bonds having to pay the government to, to hold their debt for 10 years. Um, that's leading to money going towards carry currencies and carry markets like Brazil, like Turkey, right. like South Africa. So it's a dichotomy. The problem with all of this is eventually you've got to have the growth coming through. Otherwise, equity markets get too high and the liquidity okay. eventually. Where, where, where is the growth in the Pacific Rim? I mean, start with the Japan shock today, which I believe is sub two percent, mm-hmm. yeah. sub two percent nominal uh, mm-hmm. GDP. Mm-hmm. The the air, the quiver, the, the everybody talks about the arrows in the quiver. That's yeah. out the window. Yeah. What's Pacific Rim GDP look well, like? Well, in Japan, let, let's say um, charitably growing between 0.5 and 1. The so-called former Asian tigers or some of them Korea, Taiwan are growing between 
between two two and a half percent. Very disappointing. All sorts of structural issues there, especially in Korea. The so-called ASEAN markets, Philippines, Indonesia, are growing very strongly. They are some of the better stories in the emerging markets. Right. And then, of course, you've got India, which is growing at seven percent, which people end up being disappointed about. But India's got a very very low GDP per head still. Uh, $1,500, $2,000, that sort of range. So they can continue to grow for a long for a long period of time. So it's almost like Korea and Taiwan are becoming more like developed economies. And yet the other guys, India, Philippines, Indonesia in particular, are behaving like good old-fashioned emerging markets. So it's a very mixed picture. Do you see the possibility of a global recession ahead? We don't. We're not expecting a global recession at all. We just think we're in this prolonged slow growth environment, uh, you know, global growth somewhere around the two to two and a half percent rate, depends how you measure it, of course, um, emerging markets growing at about four. And we've been, you know, we've been slowing down for a while. We've been in this low growth range for a while. We doubt very much it rolls into recession simply because of all the liquidity that's being created. But the point we make is that there are two, well, I guess three if you count China. There are three major things holding the global economy back. One is the slowdown in China, which has such dramatic <coughs> impacts on everybody. Right. Secondly, is dealing with this high level of debt that you've got still in the global economy. Reinhard Rogoff, we're dead right. You know, when you get a debt deflation like you had in 08, it takes a long time to recover from that. And then thirdly, and not given enough airtime in our view, is the very, very weak uh, growth in world trade, which is which is kind of has feedback effects on everybody. Yeah. Those are the things that are slowing growth down. Jeffrey Dennis with us with UBS to carry this forward. And it is about political economy mm. or economic politics. I would mm-hmm. say right now, Jeff Dennis, that we're being subsumed by democracy. Mm-hmm. People are going mm-hmm. to the booth and, and mm-hmm. speaking. I, I think I've never known, certainly a time in my career where politics has been seen to be so important for the markets. And frankly, I'm not a political expert, so you kind of have to roll with the punches. But I think to a certain extent, that's been the case since the global financial crisis in 2008, when obviously people lost a lot of money. And then, of course, you had the European crisis, which has been rolling on for a while and very high levels of unemployment, weak growth in Europe, the problems in countries like Greece, etc. And we watch elections very closely in emerging markets. I mean, emerging markets don't seem to have, you know, disruptive changes of government anymore, like military coups, but we still have to watch um, what happens in terms of governments. You know, you look at Brazil, where you're seeing the president having been impeached. And what does that mean mm-hmm. for policy there? And, of course, Mexico, which has done a lot of reforms. Um, the president's very unpopular. And they're watching the U.S. election very closely. So, yeah, politics um, you know, pervades everything, more than I think I've seen in my 30-year career. Well, let me rip up the script. It wasn't where I was going to go. But since okay. you talked about politics, let me ask you this. Is Do we see in any emerging markets the kind of populist movement that we're seeing in so many developed markets these days? Actually, as I'm rattling through my thought process here, I think not in quite the same way. There's certainly been some sort of a spillover in terms of what I might call, you know, warily, quote-unquote, nationalism into parts of Eastern Europe um, in terms of recent elections in Hungary and also in Poland. Although, frankly, those economies are still doing very well in relative terms, and so we shouldn't worry too much about it. But if you if you look around EM, it's hard to see that degree of populism that you've seen in the Western world. And I think that's, as I say, I think that's because when you have a fixed exchange rate system that doesn't work very well, such as the euro, you have a lot of countries that are deficit countries that are that are forced <coughs> well, to have very tight policies. Let's go the minute, the minute, two minutes we've got left to mm-hmm. do. Let's go here right now as foreign exchange as metaphor for our political economy. I mean, Barry Eichengreen's written about this for years. Mm-hmm. If we assume the United States has the exorbitant privilege... Who does not? 
Who loses their currency might in the next five to ten years? Um, I I suspect I don't know about who loses it. I, I think that you'll still see, assuming the euro survives, you'll still see the euro being being very important. I suspect the Japanese yen could lose some uh, some positioning. Um, I, I'd rather say, you know, what what could you see gaining in in, in currency, so to speak? And clearly, the Chinese uh, RMB is, is is an example of that. But you're so right because um, the story I like to tell is that the dollar trade weighted index went up forty percent from O ten to the beginning of this year, and that was a big problem for emerging markets. And now it's going. It's not exactly going the other way, but the dollar's pulled back. Mm-hmm. It's weaker than it's been. And that's making some of our currencies, which got crushed last year, actually rallying pretty strongly. And that's allowing those, the, the, these markets to do better. But you wouldn't say the South African rand or the Brazilian mm. real, for example, is going to become one of the leading currencies of the world. I'm not sure that's true. Ten seconds. Overweight, mm. underweight emerging markets. Um, we're still underweight emerging markets. Okay. Jeffrey Dennis of UBS. Thank you. In all my years at Bloomberg, to see the headline come across today that the emperor of Japan is considering abdication. He is in his 80s. He had a bout of prostate cancer oh, a good 15, 14 years ago. Emperor Akihito possibly will abdicate. It's being handled as all things to do with the Japanese with grace. Karl Weinberg has gracefully covered the Japanese political and economic experiment for decades and joins us now. Carl, Robbie Feldman was on earlier with Morgan Stanley and made clear the affection that the Japanese people have for their emperor. What kind of economy will they have going forward? I was shocked at the flatness of the economy during the reign of the emperor. Yeah, good morning, Tom. Well, you know, uh, the emperor really doesn't have a lot of input into economic policy and uh, he's more of a symbolic sure. p- uh, figure, and he's going to be, be missed. But what he's seen in his 28 years of um, em- emperorship, I guess that's the right word for it, uh, in, in his role, uh, has been a, a consistent decline of the economy. You know, we look at the industrial production numbers that were just out overnight, and they're actually lower than they were in 1988. That's uh, 28 years ago when the emperor first yeah. came into power. So it, it's been a time of net flatness for the economy and in the recent decade or so a persistent decline. The numbers this morning, folks, you know, when you're in the game here and you see relative numbers stream by as we do every moment of every day, the only word I could come up with, uh, Dr. Weinberg, was heartbreaking. The real GDP statistics, sub 1%, and an overlay of inflation, which is virtually sub 1%. The animal spirit is just not there, is it? It's not a question of animal spirits. There aren't any animals there. I mean, that's really a better way to think about it. The uh, 2.6% year-over-year decline, I'm sorry, 2.6% month-to-month decline in GDP and uh, 2.1% year-over-year is a really dramatic figure. But the longer-term trend here, the reason industrial production is lower now than it was 28 years ago is because there are fewer people in Japan now than there were 28 years ago. And while potentially they could make more stuff using productivity-enhancing technology, and surely they have a lot of that, there's less demand when there are fewer people in the economy. That means they don't have to make as much. And they're not exporting uh, as much of the world's trade as they did before. Competition's been stiff. 
So everything's been going against them, and uh, but the demographics has really been the marginal driver of the economy downward. Well, speaking of the economy, the cabinet office today uh, cut its forecast for economic growth. I was quite surprised by that. They slash it in half to nine-tenths of a percent, and they admit that we're only going to get a third of the inflation that we thought we were going to get. In my short memory of uh, dealing with people in Japan, it is unusual for them to admit failure like this. Oh, yeah, Mike. This was a pretty gutsy move. The prime minister and the governor of the Bank of Japan have been out just in the last few days talking about how Abenomics is clearly working. That was Kuroda's message to the managers, branch managers of the Bank of Japan at their quarterly meeting last week. Um, And uh, now suddenly the cabinet office comes out and, and speaks against the position of the prime minister and the central bank governor and says, no, it's not working. We need more fiscal stimulus. We need an emergency package that could be as big as 4% of GDP based on the numbers that were being thrown around. Can they withstand that? That's a huge number, Carl Weinberg. Can they withstand that? Well, this is the back-to-basics LDP think tank apparatchiks at work uh, putting together a, a program. This is what the LDP does. When things get bad, they spend more with no regard to the costs or penalties of financing it. And uh, this is what they're probably going to try to do again. Whether they can get away with it or not this time, well, in the short term, they probably can. The Bank of Japan is still in a position where it can buy pretty much all the bonds that, um, uh, that the government's printing. But every time it increases its uptake of bonds, it puts more pressure on the balance of payments, which will turn back to a deficit. That current account is going to be a deficit again because of the government's fiscal recklessness. And it's only the drop in oil prices year over year that's keeping that current account deficit from uh, occurring again and getting wider. Carl Weinberg, thank you so much. No doubt we will speak of this in the coming days and weeks. Uh, Dr. Weinberg with New York University in high-frequency economics as well. Michael McKee, bring in our esteemed guest um, out of Northwestern. I think he drank the Kool-Aid with Robert Gordon a few years ago. (laughs) Well, that's what you do, as long as it's not frozen in Chicago. William Strauss, uh, the the research director for the Chicago Fed, here with me at the Rocky Mountain Economic Summit in Afton, Wyoming, where it's Chicago-like weather this morning, Bill. It's uh... it's pretty cool. Um, But, Tom, I'll also point out that I teach part-time at the University of Chicago. Oh, so you get it from both sides here. I I think think objectively of both views, yes. Tom, I'm going to start by ripping up the script. I I was going to start by asking Bill about uh, manufacturing, uh, and we'll get to that. But he had some interesting observations. We were just talking with Mr. Yager about gasoline prices and how low they are, and that's something that you've been tracking. And Americans, uh, we know we have it good, but we don't even realize how good we have it. Well, I think we do realize it, Bob the type of selections and choices that we're making. Um, one thing I do is I look at the f- fuel and energy prices. Uh, when you compare that to, when you compare the amount of uh, food and energy prices, sorry, personal consumption expenditures on energy, which includes filling up your vehicle, uh, paying your electric bill, paying your heating bill, uh, relative to all your other spend that consumers do, it's less than four cents out of every dollar. Uh, that is at a really an all-time low that we have seen it. And uh, we were talking earlier uh, that when you look at the 1960s, which some people view as like kind of the golden age when fuel was just 25 cents a gallon and then they, you know, wash your windows as well. You know, in fact, when you go back to that period, 
uh, it was closer to about seven cents out of every dollar. So we're, we're, we're substantially below that. And I think that when you look at what people are doing with regard to the type of choices they're making on vehicles, uh, they're buying the uh, you know, bigger products. So, uh, light trucks are outselling passenger cars. All the gains last year in sales, uh, passenger, passenger cars were down about 5.5%. Uh, light trucks were up by double digits. Well, if that's all the case, then where's that extra money going? We were expecting this big pop to the economy from this gasoline price dividend. Well, I think we've all been you know, looking and see where that money is going. And you look at the savings rate, the savings rate has come back. Uh, so uh, we're, you know, we're thinking that uh, perhaps uh, quite a bit of it is being used to uh, rebalance their financial position, which kind of hurts you in the near term by not getting that pop on, on spending. But probably if they're going to put in themselves in better f- uh, financial position, might bear some fruit <laughs> later down the road. Within... The Chicago region, there's a pulse. We all were forced to read, you know, the jungle and all about industrial Chicago three generations ago. What's the pulse right now of industrial mid-America? William Strauss. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, so it, manufacturing is still one of the dominant sectors for, for the Midwest economy. Um, you know, we have about 12% of the country's population in the five states that make up the 7th Federal Reserve District, which includes Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, and, and Iowa. Uh, yet we produce uh, about uh, 30% of all the, all the light vehicles that are out there, the lion's share of heavy machinery. When you think about cat, deer, uh, CNH, Manitowoc Crane, uh, as as well as uh, you know steel. We produce about a third of the steel in the country. So, uh, manufacturing is still a very vital part of the Midwest economy. It came out of the Great Recession uh, like a, like a rocket. It was clearly the strongest recovering sector, uh, but of course, at the same time, uh, it went down more than probably any other sector short of housing. Uh, for example, uh, while the U.S. economy lost about uh, a little bit more than 4% of its output during the 18-month period of the Great Recession, manufacturing fell by about 20%. Uh, it's not unusual that manufacturing is more volatile, uh, more cyclical, but that was still all in all quite extreme. Uh, but it came back with some real strength and uh, uh, had been doing very, very well up until about a year and a half, two years ago. Coinciding with the collapse of energy prices, uh, that hurt uh, those uh, industries that were supplying uh, the energy sector. Uh, But in addition to that, uh, the the surging value of the U.S. dollar really uh, caused our U.S.-made goods to be uncompetitively priced around the world. Well, the question that follows from that is, yeah, we're still making stuff and manufacturing's back, but we don't need as many people to do that. And you've got a political campaign that's playing out against that backdrop now. Always the case. In fact, uh, 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 you know, Mike, I had a chance to testify in front of the U.S. Senate back in 2010 on this very issue uh, where, uh, uh, you know, Sherrod Brown from Ohio invited me to come and testify at a subcommittee hearing. And, you know, it, it, my, main, my main point for being there is to basically highlight the fact that, you know, when you're judging a sector that has strong productivity, not just for this year, but for decades, uh, it's a real mistake to look at the number of people employed in that sector as a way of, of, of judging its health. 
Uh, and, you know, manufacturing output employed about a third of, of, of U.S. workforce back in the you know, post-World War II period. It's now below 10%. And you, and you look at that and you say, you know, well, we're losing all these jobs. It's being taken by other countries. Really not the case. Uh, what we're seeing is that output is up by 600% over that same period. Uh, the amount of people we need to produce, the amount of goods we make is just going down over time. Uh, that's a good thing. Uh, all in all, uh, but unless, of course, you're, you're, we'll come back and touch on this point because it's the question then of what happens to the workers, and that has become sort of the central political issue of the 2016 mm. presidential campaign. Uh, Donald Trump says, uh, "Tear up the trade deals and build a wall, and that'll fix the problem." Uh, you argue that's not going to fix the problem. No, it's on, on a number of counts. First, of, with one of which being that you know fair trade, free trade is beneficial for a country. But uh, outside of that, we're seeing this around the world. Uh, this is not just a U.S. phenomena where we're seeing fewer manufacturing workers needed to produce the goods that we want. Being from the Fed, we, we, don't, we don't give advice to the fiscal side, but I was asked at the very end of my testimony back in 2010, that, you know, what would I recommend? And I was just basically saying if, if, if the opportunities for employment are not going to be very strong in a particular sector, you need to be thinking about and preparing people for the jobs that will be needed to be done in the future. And as we talk about our economy ever evolving into this knowledge-based economy, in my view, in order to be successful, you need to have knowledge, uh, which I think is one of our greatest challenges when you look at the, you know, the education system that we have in this country, not meeting the needs of the, of that employ, employee, potential employee. And, and in particular, when you look at uh, the, the share of those, of those workers uh, who do only possess uh, no more than a high school degree, they've either dropped out or the highest education they've had is a high school degree. It's about a third of our workforce, uh, with those jobs being ever increasingly not outsourced away, but technology driven away, uh, as, as we're seeing uh, continued improvements in terms of the, the way we deliver services. Well, education in the U.S. traditionally is a local responsibility. Uh, we have candidates running on a national platform. Do we need to maybe rethink how the United States does education? And I'm not talking about whether it should be at the local school board or uh, in Washington, but just the whole idea of elementary school, middle school, high school, and then if you can afford it, you go to college. Does that model work anymore? Again, not to get into fiscal issues, which I'm hesitant to do, uh, I, I do think there's some role to be played by the national authorities with regard to giving incentives. You know, when I remember when I went to school, I, I did get subsidized student loans that were back in the early 80s. We had interest rates that were uh, very, very high, double digit and to close to 15, 20 percent. Uh, and yet I got, you know, much reduced uh, loans that were uh, locked in at a, at a lower rate. So uh, you know, there was some assistance that was offered up there uh, by the federal government. That being said, you know, it allowed me to achieve a, a degree and, and subsequently now working for 35 years, uh, I, I probably would be viewed as a much higher income because of that education. Uh, and given our progressive tax system, uh, I've paid back, hopefully I've paid back <laughs> much more uh, than those subsidies subsidized loans that were afforded to me. And I think, again, that's one of the investments that we have to think about. And I think we need to look at it as an well, investment, same as we would be encouraging other types of investment. The heritage of Chicago economics, William Strauss, is just the facts. Whether it's Frank Knight or you wander forward through Stigler to Milton Friedman, it is an observation of facts. I think of, of Gary Becker, the laureate, is, is being front and center of this under social condition. Your Chicago has been torn asunder by a chronic 
violence. You're an economist. You're one of the elite of Chicago. What is your prescription for a troubled city that all of us in this nation are riveted by? Well, I mean, so Chicago's got a number of problems. You highlight the violence issue, and that certainly uh, is is an outsized problem relative to other large cities. Um, so, I mean, I would, you know, using best practices, look at why New York, for example, has, you know, a much lower murder Thank rate you. that's going on, and, yeah. and to go and think about doing some of the program approaches that ha- that have worked more successfully yeah. uh, in New York. Mike, uh, Mike, then, we're not even getting into the whole fiscal issue of, of <laughs> Chicago, which is probably the worst fiscal uh, responsible city that we've had in yeah. the country uh, matched up with the with the state of Illinois, which is also the most troubling on a fiscal front. You know, Mike, the, the work of Peter Nikias and others at the Chicago Tribune have been just extraordinary on this. And, and I think Bill Strauss's answer there is just brilliant about there's got to be some serious questions about where are the best practices, given what we observe in too many of our cities, arguably led tragically by Chicago. Well, we've just got about 30 seconds left, Bill, but you you make a good point. We don't always, when we design social programs, make them fact-based. We don't look at best practices. And that's a problem that uh, we have in economics, uh, you know, quite frequently, where you're you're given opportunities to offer up something. And and the first instance, it's like the minimum wage concept, right? You want to help people out who have low wages, let's just raise up the minimum wage without thinking about the second order uh, or tertiary consequences of what that will imply, uh, which is, in essence, if you're asking uh, employers to pay more for somebody than they actually contribute towards the job, uh, they will not be yeah. uh, offered. So just, and just to close off, to, since we're, Tom seems to be a fan of Chicago, you know, I'll, I'll quote Milton Friedman, who said that the uh, ultimate minimum wage that we have is zero, because that's the wage that somebody will earn who doesn't get a job because the wage is set over their, their talent to be offered <laughs> to the employer. Bill Strauss, thanks for joining us here from uh, the Rocky Mountain Economic Summit, uh, senior economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Back in McKee in Wyoming, I'm in New York. I think Jamie Dimon's in New York. Let's have a discussion. Michael Mayo here with CLSA. Michael, wonderful to have you here uh, for a, a good amount of time. And I guess we want to start with J.P. Morgan earnings tomorrow, but we need to go viral, as Mr. Diamond did yesterday with an essay in the New York Times. And I, I picked it up, and, you know, I'm as jaded as you are. Yeah, yeah, okay, great. And it was actually cogent about the primal scream of a part of banking we never talk about, which is these banks have thousands of people, and a lot of them in commercial banking traditional banking, are barely getting by. 237,420 employees, and Mr. Diamond has a lot of tellers and staff barely getting by, right? Yeah, most of the banking industry is Main Street as opposed to Wall Street. It's not guys out in the Hamptons deciding whether to take the Ferrari out for a spin. Exactly, and that's why Jamie Diamond's op-ed yesterday got so much of attention. He said he's raising the minimum wage for employees at J.P. Morgan by one-fifth. He wants to make sure that the lower level of J.P. Morgan, you know, they're going to f- help try to fix that income inequality, uh, at least at J.P. Morgan itself. When, when we look at this, and I think of the Aetna executive uh, at Davos who announced on surveillance that he was boosting pay, is it 
because he wants to do it and feel good? I doubt it. What's the backstory here? Is it retention? Well, the backstory here, look, we call J.P. Morgan the LeBron James of banking because like LeBron James, J.P. Morgan is good at both offense and defense. And this op-ed by Jamie Dimon is a little bit of both. On the defensive side, this is where the world's going anyway. He needs to increase the minimum wage. Oh, by the way, banking, especially at J.P. Morgan, is becoming more technology-driven. You have more advanced ATMs and mobile banking and phone banking and internet banking, which means you have a mixed shift, and the tellers that remain will be expected to do more. So some of this is defense. And by the way, he got a shout-out by Sherrod Brown, you know, staunch, uh, often anti-bank uh, congressman who said, oh, this was really good that Jamie Dimon said this. This is also, though, a, an offensive move because it shows that J.P. Morgan can pay their employees more. When banking's done right, it's a great business for the, the lenders, the borrowers, and the employees, and J.P. Morgan's showing that. And you know what? I'm not sure every community bank out there can match the increase in the, the wage hikes at, at J.P. Morgan. So J.P. Morgan, this is an example of economies of scale. Let's bring in Michael McKee. He's in left Wyoming. Tomorrow he'll be in right Idaho. Is that right, Mike? That is correct. You're, you're yeah. getting your geography correct. Yeah. I haven't seen a J.P. Morgan branch out here, but I'm sure they're around, there, uh, around somewhere. But you were talking about the technology they employ, the advanced ATMs, and the thing that came to my mind, Michael, is they're giving raises to employees that they are just going to be getting rid of over the next couple of years as they embrace automation more and more, and maybe as they cut back on uh, bank branches. Yeah, this is where the world's going. So at least with those who remain, you're going to need to know more about the technology. You're going to be more of a type of consultant when you walk in the branch. This isn't your father's banking. This is the new age of banking. I agree. And, yeah. and so if you're going to you know, have to go here anyway, why not get a first mover advantage? So to some degree in the banking industry, Jamie Dimon helped J.P. Yeah. Morgan get a first mover advantage. But without being too cynical, Tom, you and I are both very jaded over the years. You know, banks do a lot of good. So this op-ed sounded a little bit like the J.P. Morgan CEO letter. Like, it's great that... You know, they got it in there. But on the other hand, they do a lot of good. They may as well try to get credit for it. What are we going to see in the earnings report tomorrow? I get a real watershed emotion from guys like you that they've been through the proverbial hell and they're moving on to a better time X quarters out. Is tomorrow the beginning of a transitional set of announcements by two big-to-fail banks? Well, tomorrow reflects the first earnings released by a major bank since Brexit. And Brexit, you know, we summarize the potential issues as the four Cs. One is costs. The cost of doing business can go higher in Europe. We'll want to ask Jamie Dimon about that. Remember, Jamie Dimon said he might move 4,000 jobs out of London in the UK, elsewhere in Europe. What's the update on that? The second would be the currency move. Look at that move in the pound. Yeah. Did JP Morgan get hurt? Did another large bank get hurt? If they did, they're going to get beaten up by investors. If they didn't, this shows additional resiliency. The third C would be capital markets, a little risk-off environment. But are the U.S. banks, such as J.P. Morgan, gaining share? And the fourth C would be central banks, and that's the lower for longer interest rates. And that's probably the factor that hurts bank earnings more than any other. Well, the um, next question then is, uh, is it mostly absorbed at this point? Well, there's two ways to answer that. One is, is it mostly absorbed in the earnings? And we think absolutely not. Uh, we think that 
large bank earnings estimates are at risk by 10 to 15 percent over the next couple of years. Uh, many uh, investors and banks were expecting several rate hikes by the end of next year. And now the uh, the Fed fund futures markets uh, expects anything but that, maybe one hike by the end of next year. So, you know, collectively, the investment world needs to ratchet down expectations for rate hikes. And with lower for longer rates, that hurts bank earnings. Yeah. The second uh, part of the answer, though, is, is it reflected in the bank stocks themselves? So here you have this stock market hitting these these high levels, but banks are still at levels from two decades ago. And so banks have, you know, very nice yields, the dividend yields on like J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo are very favorable. So typically when you're chasing for yield in this environment, you're really paying up a lot, well, but not for the banks. To, to put this in, 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 in we're, let's run through this, and we'll have Mike Mayo back uh, with us. On the Bloomberg screen, J.P. Morgan is a rich 12 multiple. That's half of most consumer discretionaries that don't have the market share J.P. Morgan has. Is your area a screaming buy? We think this is a buy. As you know, we were negative for a couple decades, and now we recommend bank stocks. Uh, we think that there are earnings headwinds. So if you're looking to, you know, we don't make these trading calls. You're not going to use the word screaming because it's not, it's in CFA level four. <laughs> I know you're a CFA also, But Tom. screaming, it's not screaming. But our investment horizon, no, our, under a reasonable investment horizon sure. of one to three years, this is as attractive as they've been in a long time. You have earnings headwinds. Mm -hmm. And that has not been fully incorporated. But you have the best balance sheet resiliency you've had in the banking industry in, right. dec in decades. 12 seconds. Can they do a double-digit five-year dividend growth? The math's all screwed up now because they're starting from zero. But can you model them out for a double-digit dividend growth? For J.P. Morgan? In the banks, yeah. Oh, in, in the banks. Well, it's a general it, statement. You know, the way I'd answer that question is if you look at dividends with buybacks, it's all a way it's to return there. capital. Right. It's there. So, so the answer is yes if you include the buybacks. So then you get there if you include share buybacks. Mike, I hadn't brought this chart up. We're so much America, Europe, 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 Italian banks and all that. I had forgotten the diamond Corbett disparity of J.P. Morgan's stock performance back to the beginning of the crisis, August of 07, in the dead cat bounce and non-ascent of Citigroup. Let's talk about Michael Corbett in uh, a team international, but you have published many times before. What are you waiting for on Mexico? Tell me about what Citigroup does with distressed businesses. Well, Citigroup's gone a long way to disposing of many of the legacy assets left over from the crisis. They've exited you know, more than a dozen consumer markets outside the United States. But we don't think Citigroup's gone far enough. Citigroup reports earnings on Friday, and I think you'll still see single-digit ROEs when other banks such as J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo have double-digit return on equity. <clears throat> One idea that we have that could take Citigroup further, and we think they should do it, is exit Mexico. For most of their over uh, 200 years in existence, they did not have a major banking franchise in Mexico. They bought Banamex uh, early last decade. And so wh while we have this talk about Brexit, we come up with our new term of Mexit, and that Mexit refers to Citigroup should exit <clears throat> Mexico, sell off that bank, simplify that much more. If I do a 10-for-1 re reverse stock split on Amazon, I think I get a $7,000 per share, something like that. I still look at Citigroup as $4.32 pre the reverse split. Why can't they get this stock going? 
One difference versus before the crisis is they did issue a lot more stock. Uh, but even on a stock-for-stock stock basis, the stock is still less than half of where it was uh, in the past. And the bottom line is they need to improve their return on equity. That's, you know, as you know from CFA, Tom, uh, you know how much earnings you generate for every dollar of yeah. equity in the business. And part of that is simply discarding still some of the low-performing businesses, such as Mexico. We've said that. And the stock that price is, you know, around 70% of book value. And when you're trading at such a low price like that, you know, management needs to take more aggressive action. Whatever they need to do, they need to do it. it it's been long enough of a wait. I mean, the stock price is at the same level where it was a couple decades ago. You've seen all the, the turmoil they've had. Now, the new CEO, uh, he made some of the right steps when he took over a few years ago, but we see that waning some. So they need to re-energize their restructuring program that they started a few years ago. Anybody else uh, as radical surgery as City still does at this point? Well, in general, that's a good question because the banking industry in the United States still has the worst revenue growth that it's had you know, in 80 years. This decade, revenues at U.S. banks have been the worst they've been in 80 years. So therefore, if you can't get the results on the top line with revenues, the only way to get it on the bottom line is through expenses and restructuring. So Bank of America, which we started to recommend a few months ago for the first time in a while, uh, because of the resiliency of the balance sheet, still lacks a sufficient plan B. And so Bank of America, during their earnings presentations, they would highlight when interest rates increase, look how much better we'll do. Well, guess what? Interest rates haven't increased. We're still in a similar spot where we were a couple of years ago. What is your plan B, Bank of America? How are you going to become more efficient? You can't just shine your shoes, you know, go to work and wait for rates to rise anymore. So they need more surgery at Bank of America, too. I want to switch gears a little bit here and bring up a subject that came up uh, here at the Rocky Mountain sure. Economic Summit out in Wyoming. Uh, a couple of uh, bankers and BC people here saying, the money is out there. You can get money. Banks are willing to lend, but the customers are not. People, even though interest rates are extraordinarily low, the problem for banks isn't just the fact that they don't have a big margin, but they're not moving enough product at this point. Well, at this time of the presidential election, it's a fair question to ask, has the regulatory reaction gone too far? And as supportive as I was of the uh, the regulators before the crisis and since the crisis, I think the pendulum now has swung too far. This economic expansion Loans have only grown one-third the pace of a typical economic expansion, and partly that's due to the de-risking and deleveraging required by bank regulators that encourages banks to lend less to the most risky borrowers. The downside's just too bad when you make a loan, to, you know, a subprime loan or somebody who can't really afford it. On the other hand, it's not just supply, it's also demand, and the demand from borrowers is not as much. They're flushing cash also. So is it the chicken or the egg? Is it the bank's not yeah. wanting to lend or is the demand's a little bit of both? Well, Ray, maybe from your remit, but I'm going to ask you anyways. I get this constantly. Where's the M&A? What are these guys waiting for? Andrew Jackson talked about it. I know you were covering banks when uh, Jackson was fighting the, the good fight in New Orleans. Where is the M&A? We think the bank industry is still very ripe for more mergers. Now, clearly, the, ba- the largest banks are too large. They're they're prohibited from buying. Yeah, I get that, anymore. but come on. But for the rest of those, such as Comerica, Comerica, uh, this could be an epic event based on how this plays out. They report their earnings Tuesday. They give the results 
of a consultant who's going to show them how to grow ve- revenues and control expenses better, even though the CEO has been there for you know quite some time. So why do you need a consultant to tell you how to do that? So Comerica is one bank that should at least consider, you know, as part of their plan B, should we sell to another uh, bank that's a lot more efficient with a okay, lot better okay. returns? But that, that's one example. But there's many banks no, out there. No, but I get that. that but I want to rip up the script. This is really important. They're trading in a 17 multiple. They're trading at over double Citigroup. They're trading at a very nice premium to Mr. Diamond's franchise. I get it. That's a takeout premium because smart guys like you are saying they're going to take out. What's their response? What, what are they waiting for? Well, we will find out Tuesday. This is a lot of eyes in the banking industry are certainly looking at Comerica. They're saying we can optimize our franchise on our own. They haven't done it for the last decade, so why now can they change it? So we'll see if they get some magic beans from the Boston yeah. Consulting Group. Mike, yeah, the Boston Consulting Group. Mike, Comerica, 10-year track record, negative 1% per year. They're optimizing. Mike, jump in here, please. <laughs> um, you're talking about City getting rid of uh, its Mexico operations uh, as as one strategic move. Is there anybody in the U.S. that needs to expand at this point overseas, uh, or um, is everybody optimized right now? Well, I think you can go both ways. My, If I was king of the banking industry, let's say the banking industry does exactly what Mike Mayo says to do, I would have the most efficient banks. I'd like that. By the least efficient banks. The successful banks by the ones that have failed for the last decade. Not failed in terms of not being in existence, but failed to generate good returns, you know, pay their employees well, like JP Morgan's, you know, doing more of a head. And so, you know, banks such as U.S. Bancorp is one of the most efficient banks around. I asked them, why not buy somebody? You're optimized. Why not go out and optimize somebody else? And I think they're starting to go in that direction. So, Tom, the answer to your question is, I think next year we could see a, you know, a bit more okay. M&A among banks. Michael Mayo, CLSA, will call upon him here in the coming days and weeks as he gets a, This is like showtime for you, isn't it? Do you sleep like in the next three weeks, to the next 10 days, rather? Four times a year. It's, Four times it, a year. It, it, it's, it's like it's game, by year. It's, it's game day. I game mean, day. You, you wake up early, you're on it. Super Bowl. He's like, he's like <laughs> cut and chiseled and ready for it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.